Join me in Acts chapter number 13. Acts chapter 13. I'm going to take just a little bit of time to introduce this. I would draw your attention as you're turning there. If you have your hand out, uh, whether you keep notes or not, would you notice uh, the title? I don't normally draw attention to the title. I don't put a lot of, frankly, I don't put a lot of effort into the titles. They just kind of, whatever the text is about, that's usually the title, nothing fancy. Uh, But I have inserted um, a word there. So last week we introduced, uh, we saw that Paul was introducing his sermon. Uh, We'll set that up in just a moment. Um, Do I sound a little hot? Is it ringy? A touch, just a touch uh, echoey. Not echoey, but um, reverberating a touch. All right. Um, So our approach to the Word of God this morning, uh, as I, you may have caught in my opening prayer, is I, I feel some concern uh, because we're at a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, have you ever told a joke to someone who knows the punchline? It doesn't usually work. They don't laugh. Um, and the disadvantage that you are at, unless you're brand new here, uh, brand new to church in South Carolina, um, you already know most of this material because we have gone through uh, the book of Matthew just uh, a little over a year ago. We finished going through like literally the details of what we're going to be reading. We get very familiar with this and we've heard it a lot and it's very easy to just kind of be nonchalant and just kind of see some facts. And so I invite you uh, to pray like right now within yourself and just say, Lord, keep me engaged. Help me to uh, lean into your word throughout. And if I'm, I'm a Christian, to deepen my appreciation and deepen my ability to be able to explain this to other people. Um, and if you are not yet a Christian, I invite you to ask the Lord to speak to you as well and show you what, and to draw you to himself. Uh, the reason I pointed out this title is the word typical. So we're going to see, I, I proposed to you last week, as we're moving through these missionary journeys, there's going to be three missionary journeys that Paul is going to go on. A man named Barnabas is with him on the first one. They've gone through the island of Cyprus. Uh, on the first missionary journey, and then they headed north. So this is in the Mediterranean Sea. We'll not put the map back up. But they've made it to the southern border of where we call Turkey. And at that point, a young man left the team, so he quit. So it's just these two men, and they carry on. And apparently Paul uh, has a sickness and an ailment, something, and they're going to move northward up into what we call Turkey, Asia, Asia Minor at that time. And it has all these regions within the Roman Empire. And they're going to come to a place called Antioch of Pisidia. So this is a different Antioch. There's another Antioch that they left. But now they're in this very mountainous region, 3,600 feet altitude. And they've made their way to Pisidian Antioch. And they go into a synagogue. And while they're there, like a Jewish synagogue, some reading from the Bible. All they had was the Old Testament. Some reading from the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. And some reading from the prophet section was read. And then the rulers of the synagogue apparently know that Paul and Barnabas are well trained in the scriptures. And they offer, hey, do you guys have anything, any words of encouragement for the audience? And Paul being the dominant speaker, the one who's the apostle called specifically to the Gentiles and also has a great heart for the Jews, an undying burden for the Jews, He's like, yeah, I'll take that offer. And then he stands up and he motions with his hands and he gives this message. And so the reason I call this Paul's, not just Paul's synagogue sermon, it's, it's as though our author here, Luke, is going to record a synagogue sermon for us. 
And they're going to keep hitting town after town after town, city after city after city. And all we're going to get is this idea, and they preached the word. They spoke the word. And so I think this is given to us as an example, a sample. Here's basically what he would preach. And so I look at this. I believe this is a, rather than, we can't write it out every time, the book of Acts would be massive. And so he gives us here, kind of at the outset of the missionary journeys, what a typical sermon that Paul would preach in a synagogue setting. And then in chapter 17, he's going to give us a, a, an approach that Paul would give when he's not in a synagogue setting and he's only talking to Gentiles because Paul has a whole different approach in that setting. This is if he was in a synagogue that has Jews in the front and there are Gentiles in the back who are called God-fearers. And Paul does an amazing thing in verse number 16. When he stands, he addresses the, the Jews and you who fear God, and no doubt everyone in the synagogue is like, what, what's he doing? We don't, we don't include them. They're just kind of looking on. If ever they want to get circumcised and start adhering to the law of Moses, then they become a proselyte. But right now, they're, but this man's up addressing them. And there's a reason, because Paul, and you're going to see it again here in verse 26, he's going to double down on this dual audience. And so he has this sermon that is, in essence, one is going to repeat often. In fact, I'm not going to turn there. You'll have a hint as to where our outline is going. Some of you will remember in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Now, we're going to get, Paul's going to make his way to Corinth coming up in chapter 18. We're in 13, right? So that's on the second missionary journey. But later on, Paul's going to write them a letter when he's away from Corinth. And he's going to say how that he, when he got there, how he shared the gospel with them and they believed the gospel and they were saved by it. And then he says, some of you are familiar with this, he says what the gospel is, how that Christ died according to, our, to the scriptures for our sins and how he was buried and how he rose again according to the scriptures and then he presented himself alive and he goes down this whole list of people that he showed himself to and I mention that because that shows me that the exact same thing that Paul says when I got there that's the gospel I shared it's the exact same thing we're going to find here this morning so in a moment I'm going to begin reading in verse number 23 let's quickly review last week's intro to his message here's what Paul does he says, the God of the nation of Israel chose our fathers. So he starts right there. God chose the Jews. And then he says, when they went down into Egypt, this is the book of Exodus, God multiplied and blessed the Jews. He doesn't mention it, but we know that the Egyptians get afraid because the Jews are multiplying so rapidly. And so they end up putting them in slavery. But Paul says, but God with a lifted arm brought our people out. God blessed them and brought them out. And then, again, this is introduction preaching in a synagogue, God sustained them. God very patiently endured, was long-suffering with his people in the 40 years in the wilderness. And then, after that, they actually crossed the Jordan River. They go into the land of Canaan, and God destroyed seven nations and gave the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. And we parked there quite a while last week, and we made a big deal. The land that we call Canaan and Israel in the Old Testament belongs to the Jews, that belongs to the Jews. That's a hot item in, in the news right now. And if you need to go back and only just listen to that, it's very practical, not a goosebump portion, but it's something you need to sink. It's going, it should settle the argument and all of the discussion around that. So Paul says, God led our people in. He conquered the land. He gave our people the land. And then after that, he gave our people judges for a few hundred years. 
And judges were just like these deliverers. People would oppress the nation of Israel, and God would raise up a deliverer. And there are like 12 of them. And then finally, Samuel is in essence the last of these, but Samuel's also a great prophet. And in his lifetime, the people started complaining. We're tired of the theocracy, God of our government being a theocracy where God is our ruler. We can't see him. We need a physical king. They want a monarchy. And so God allows it, and they choose Saul. And for 40 years, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin reigns. But when God moves Saul out of the way, God brings his man, David, to the forefront, a man after God's own heart. That was the end of last. Does everybody follow that? God chose. God blessed. God delivered. God sustained. God conquered. God gave them the land. Gave them leadership. They asked for a king. They get Saul. They get David. All of that is leading up to David because that's where he really needs to get for the main body of his message. So as I'm ready, getting ready to read, this is bigger than I would normally. And normally we wouldn't try to tackle 20 or 19 verses. So we're going to read. But I kind of felt like this week we need to do it all at one time to keep it together. So let's hit the body, the main body of Paul's message in the synagogue. Verse 23. So he gets to David. He stops going over Jewish history. There's much more after that, hundreds and hundreds of years. But having found David, he says, of this man's offspring, God, picture it, listen, what is old to you, what's old to us, what we've heard many times, if you could somehow go back in time and put yourself in that synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and hear this guy standing up, and some of these people might have heard rumors of this, and some have no doubt been to Jerusalem and have heard it told but haven't really shared it, but there's going to be some sitting there like, what are you saying, verse number 13, 23, of this man's offspring, David, God has brought, has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So right out of the gate, God has kept his promise of a Savior. Verse 23, 4. Before his coming, like before he actually launches out in his ministry, something happened. Before his coming, John, we know this is John the Baptist. John had proclaimed a Baptist. So picture it's AD 45. 46 maybe, somewhere around there, 44, 45, 46. Paul's in what we call Turkey. He's referring to events from 15, 16 years earlier. But before this Savior's coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? So here John the Baptist, whoa, 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 what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. no. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. You know, so now we know Jesus had sandals. We know this. And there's straps. I am literally, if he were to say, someone come over here and take my shoes off. We're not worthy to do that. Now, if he tells somebody to do it, you do it. But no, you're not worthy to stoop down there at his feet. Are you him, John? Are you crazy? No. There's a great one coming. Verse 26. So now, having laid that foundation, here we're back in the city in Antioch. We're back in the synagogue. Paul tells his audience, brothers, he doubles down on his audience, sons of the family of Abraham and those, of you, and those among you who fear God. I can picture them again pointing to the back. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. He's going to say that. This kind of, he's going to keep flavoring that in his message. Like, do you understand? We're living in it. We're in it. We're in the time. 
I get to preach to you the salvation message. Clearly. Why? Here he goes. He reached David, talks about Jesus, mentions his forerunner, John. Now he gets to verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, who lives in Jerusalem, the Jews at this time, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, the Jewish rulers, they did something. And he gives us the reasons. Because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. They didn't recognize him, didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Y'all just finished reading it, in essence, is what Paul would say. What, what just happened, happens in all the synagogues, week after week after week, every Saturday, and yet, and they do it in Jerusalem, and yet the rulers, because they didn't recognize him and they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, though they're read every Sabbath day, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Uh, what do y'all want this morning? We want a death penalty. Death penalty? Come on, it's, it's your feast. I didn't think you guys would. Today we want the death penalty. For who? This man. For what? And they try to throw out some reasons. Though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And now it's as though Paul doubles back to what he says in verse 27. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul just hits this super fast. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He's telling this to his audience. You've heard this before, but they're like, they're putting all these pieces. It's brand new to them. They take him down from the tree. Now we know that he's clearly told them that it was a crucifixion. They take him down from the tree. They work with his body, a lot of expense, a lot of effort, as was proper, but they put him in this tomb. He didn't end up needing it, not for very long. But God raised him from the dead. And in my mind, he could have just stopped in verse 30, jumped down to verse number 38, but he doesn't. Like, he wants to explain verse 30. God raised—now read with me. Here we go. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. So he rose and he appeared to these people. They would know him. And now Paul comes back to himself and Barnabas. And we bring you the good news that what God promised, what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And then it's going to get a little tricky here. As also it is written in the second Psalm. So we know even back 2,000 years ago, what is Psalm 2 now in our Bible was Psalm 2 then. Because Paul says, as it is also written in the second Psalm. And he pulls this part out. Verse number 7 of Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And no doubt these people, I remember hearing that. Yes, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Paul's saying this is who he's talking about. Verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, for the fact of that, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. This, I'm going to go ahead and admit to you, this is the trickiest verse. I'll not spend a long time on it. I'm going to give you a quick idea of what I think it's talking about here. This is taken from uh, Isaiah chapter 55. Watch verse 34 again. 
As for the fact, so he's preaching to his audience, his synagogue audience. As for the fact that he, God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you, here's the quote, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, so you got to follow what Paul's doing in their minds. He's being very logical. Therefore, he says also in another psalm. So three times now, three Old Testament quotes, Paul is putting in to defend the whole idea of the resurrection and who is resurrected. Therefore, he says in another psalm, this time he pulls from Psalm 16. And here's the quote, same one Peter used back in chapter 2. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And now Paul does exactly what Peter did in chapter 2. For David, he's talking to his audience. For David, and they know David, King David. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he served God well, he fell asleep, died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So now he's defended the resurrection with the Bible and he's given reasons. And here's his conclusion. To his audience. Let it be known to you therefore. So therefore. Here's my message to you. Here's my conclusion. Brothers. That through this man. Forgiveness of sins. This is what you want. Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In essence what Paul is saying. I'm proclaiming forgiveness of sins to you. How? And by him everyone. That's why I'm including you guys in the back. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from what? From everything. Now, watch verse 39. I'm going to throw this out very quickly. Someone offered a strange interpretation of this. I never read it that way. I don't even know why you would, but apparently some see it this way. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Is this what he means? Hey, keep the law of Moses... Do the best you can there, and whatever's left over, this man's work frees you from that. Did you hear what I just, like, you're like, that's not, we know that's not the interpretation. Verse 39 again. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And then he finishes with a warning. Here's his audience. Having just preached this message, typical synagogue message, here's how Paul concludes. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Don't let what the prophet said be true of you. And I would say that to you this morning. Don't let what was told to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, from the prophet Habakkuk, don't let this be true of you. Verse 41, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe. You will not believe even if one tells it to you. That's a strange way to finish, and that's where he finishes his message. And then the next time we come back, we'll have to see their reaction. Would you notice with me a few things this morning? Number one, verses 23 to 25, there's a promise. I'm sorry, there's a preparation for God's promised Savior. There's preparation for the promised Savior. So he gets to David. And he uses David as a springboard to where he really needs to get. So I'm back up in verse number 23. Of this man's offspring, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. Do you understand? We could stop right there. And, and if I were to just say, tell me some truth, 
that comes out of that text, and you guys would be able to do it. If you were to just read that over and over, here's what you would find, okay? There is a Savior. God promised a Savior. The Savior came literally to Israel, not just for Israel, but the Savior came to Israel. We know the Savior is a descendant of David. We know the Savior has come. Here's what Paul's telling his audience. Hey, Jews, you're here today to find out more clues, and you're coming to like pray and ask for the, the Messiah, the Christ to come. I'm here to tell you, you can stop praying for the Messiah to come in the way that you're anticipating because he has already come. God has brought him to Israel. He's a descendant of David. No, oh, by the way, we know his name. His name is Jesus. Look at verse number 24 and 25. Here's Paul's message. This Jesus is so important. He's so important that he doesn't just arrive on the scene, the Savior from God. He's so important that God sends a forerunner in advance of him. A prophet comes before the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. But I would invite you guys to remember, let's rehearse something. One of the things that was so unusual about John the Baptist is he was not just raised up as a prophet of God and started prophesying and speaking truth. He was so unusual because of his close connection with Jesus that actually prophecies in the Old Testament were made about John because he's the forerunner of the actual Christ. And that's what John is. He's so key, unlike other prophets, those prophets talk about his ministry pointing to the Christ. If you're taking notes, would you write the following down? Paul mentions John's baptism. I'm going to get your help. I'm going to give you a few seconds to gather your thoughts. I'm looking for three words. Y'all ready? You're going to get them. Paul mentions John's baptism because... The emphasis of John's baptism is that the Jews needed to repent. John's baptism was an emphasis that the Jews needed to repent. Finish my sentence. The Jews needed to three words. What are those three words? Change their mind. Why is he mentioning John the Baptist? Because before the Savior actually comes, God sends out this forerunner who tells the Jews, get ready, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior is coming, and you need to prepare, and to do so, Jews, you need to change your mind. You need to repent. So here, so I'll have you write down. Change their mind how? Stop. Listen, he's talking to Jews. Jews, stop viewing salvation as a national right because you're descendants of Abraham, and start viewing salvation as an individual, personal transaction of faith, not works, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his message. Say it again. The Jews needed to change their view. They needed to change their mind and their core to stop viewing salvation as a national right. We're Jews. We have promises in the Bible, of course. God has to save us. God made promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis. God's going to save us. We're his chosen people. You better stop looking at it as a national right because of your relationship to Abraham and being his physical descendants. You better start looking at it as a personal, individual, to you transaction of faith in Jesus. Very specific. And that's John's message. My understanding is that before John the Baptist, and this is key, before John the Baptist, Jews were not baptized. That's what was so unusual. John comes along and says, Jews need to be baptized. Gentiles would be baptized. 
Gentiles who want to become Jewish proselytes, they would be circumcised, start observing the Sabbath day, making sacrifices, become proselytes, get baptized, confessing their sins. John has the boldness to come along and say, hey, Jews, you need to be baptized not to wash your sins away, but as an expression of your confession of your sin. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, verse number 6, I remember it stood out to me because John baptized them confessing their sins. I'm, I think this is what happened. I think John takes Jews down in the river, and as they're being baptized, they're confessing their specific sins. What if we did that here? I'm a blasphemer, I'm a thief. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. I'm a big old liar. I am, in the name of the Father and the Son. <laughs> You'd be like, I don't think I want to do that. I'll just keep my faith private. John's telling Jews, get your heart right. Get sin right. Change your view. You better have a personal transaction of faith with the Lord. And now Jesus is, Paul is presenting this to his audience there in Antioch in the synagogue. Can I throw this out? If the Jews have to have salvation, and it's personal to them, how much more do you have to have salvation? They have promises from God. If they had to have an individual transaction of faith in Christ, how much more do you have to have it? Verse number 25, quickly notice this. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. People came to John on occasion. So settle this for us, man. It's been 400 years. We've not had a prophet from God. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Technically, no. He came in the spirit of Elijah, but he is not Elijah reincarnated. Are you the great prophet that Moses said was going to come? No, you don't know it, but the great prophet and the Messiah, the Christ, are the same person. I'm none of that. Then what are you? Does anybody remember what he answered there? Then what are you? I am a... I'm a voice. Let that sink in. Here's this person that was like the most powerful, most looked up to, respected person in all of Israel. Then what are you? And he says, me? I'm just a voice. Seeing me is not important, but you better really hear what I'm saying. I'm a voice. And if you do see me, I want you to see me as doing nothing but pointing to Christ. I'm a voice. I'm pointing to Christ as a signpost because I want you to understand he is far greater than me. He's a far greater person. He has far greater power, and his baptism is far greater than my baptism. I'm just a voice. It isn't about me. It's about him. And so John is constantly pointing, if we could have that note, to the Lord. He's a signpost. He is a greater person. He is a greater baptism. I'm just baptizing you in water. The Lord Jesus, he will actually baptize you in the Holy Spirit. John was so humble and yet bold, and those can go together. John was so humble that literally in his mind, slave work, slave work for Christ would be a high honor. Jesus actually comes to John and says, you're to baptize me. And John's like, no, I'm not, I'm, you, you need to baptize me. I'll baptize them. I, I'm not, I can't baptize. And he would not do it until the Lord insists, no, you need to do this. Because we know that the Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus was not confessing sin or washing his sins away in any way. He was literally going through what God had said would identify him, and he would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's get into the heart of the message this morning. Would you notice in verses 26 to 37, number two, Paul's message of salvation. Paul's message of salvation. Verse number 26, 
brothers, he's in the synagogue, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent. It's as though Paul is saying, listen, you live in the best time period ever. Why? Because we're not, no longer looking at the Old Testament and trying to decipher what does this mean and what does that mean. And man, we missed it on that and that's kind of dark and trying to connect the dots. We're not doing that. Now we actually know exactly what God was doing and it is far greater than anything that we ever imagined. And I want to propose to you an outline from 1 Corinthians because it is the outline of Paul's message. Would you notice two predominant, I'm going to skip the middle one that, John, uh, that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to hit the two bookends, which are the main thing uh, that we have time for this morning. Number one, you ready? What is this gospel message? What is this salvation message? And you know this, and this is where I'm going to invite you again. Like, Lord, help me to lean into this and really think about this in a fresh way as it's laid out in our text. Number one, Jesus died according to the scriptures. Jesus died, but he didn't just die. He died according to the scriptures. So with that in mind, I'm, let's revisit. I want you to reread verse number 27 to 29. Let's hit it, and then we'll make a few comments. Verse 27 again. This message is to us, Antioch. Why? Here's, some, here's what happened. For those who live in Jerusalem, the Jews, and their rulers, notice that Paul does exactly what Peter and all the rest of the New Testament writers, they don't put the blame on the Romans, and they don't put the blame just on all Jews. They put the practical blame on the specific Jews that were in Jerusalem, because this is the facts. Paul says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Which write down three reasons. Why did these rulers, why did the Jewish rulers kill this man Jesus? Why did they kill him? Three reasons Paul gives. Number one, they were too blind to recognize God in the flesh. Too blind to recognize God in the flesh. Literally, God, God himself became flesh, lived among them for 33 years. You would think if God became a man, he would probably live a little different. Well, he lived very differently, and yet they couldn't even recognize that's the God-man. His life was extremely different. They still somehow missed it. Totally. God, right there among them, they missed it. Number two, they were ignorant of the Messianic prophecies. Read them over and over and over, read them over and over and over, but never connected the dots, never realized what was happening. They're right in the middle of it, doing it, but they don't understand what they're doing. Number, and by the way, that falls perfectly in line. Peter, in, in three times in early in the book of Acts, he talks about how the Jews and their rulers were ignorant. Jesus, being crucified, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's either, I think it's chapter 2, verse number 8. He says, if the rulers of this world knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They don't know. Like, really, did they not know? No, they didn't know what they were doing. And then number three, unfortunately, they were not just ignorant and blind. They were wicked and very corrupt. I read the passages again because it's as though Paul, here's what he's saying. Hey, Jews in the synagogue, here's what I want you to understand. All those difficult passages that we study in the Bible, you know those where we see there's this servant of God 
but he's suffering at the hands of evil, wicked men. Well, now we know who the servant of God is, and we know who the wicked men are. The servant of God is actually this man named Jesus, and the wicked men were our own rulers. These were our own rulers. In their mind, they put him to death by crucifixion. They think, there, that cancels it. He surely can't be the Messiah. But actually, by putting him to death by crucifixion, it did nothing but prove that he is the Messiah. But they were blind to the whole thing. They're fulfilling it, according to verse number 29. So they're ignorant. But they're wicked. Again, picture the scene on that Friday morning. They come to Pilate. What, what do you guys want? Why would you call me here so early? We want a death penalty against this man. Why the death penalty? We know that Pilate ends up having Jesus scourged and beaten. I mean, horribly beaten. That's not enough. We want him to be dead. I wish if this was a Wednesday night or another setting, I'm telling you, we would just stop and pause. There's like three or four times right here in this one paragraph where I would pause and we would just work this out. If I was in a home group, we would just pull this apart. Here's my question. Why did they hate him? Why did they hate him? Is what? They were jealous. His teaching was not like theirs. Made them angry. We could go over a lot of them, right? He cleansed the temple. He, made, he took some cords, made a whip, ran their little moneymakers out of the temple. What's another big one? Why do they hate him? He did something. He did it on purpose. He did it multiple times. He what? I'm actually talking about what Jesus did. Yeah. Is what? He challenged them. He broke man-made laws. Specific which ones? Sabbath day. He healed. Not one time. He went out of his way to heal people. This makes him so angry. And he claims to be the son of God. He doesn't necessarily clearly come out and say he's the Christ, though we know that he did. But he does allude to being the son of God. You put all this, like they hate this man. And so here they come to Pilate. He needs to die. But Pilate's a Roman governor. Like, you know, what has he done? Here's the problem. He lived literally a sinless life. Sinless, perfect. There is nothing. And Pilate ends up saying as much when he puts a placard over his cross. What's he dying for? What's the charges? Oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's his crime. He's the king of the Jews. He is who he is. He's, he's dying for who he is. No sin. And yet they still pursued him. Help me out. Had they really done what the Bible called for in the Old Testament, how would they have called for him to be killed? He should have been stoned or with a sword, pierced through or have his head cut off with a sword. Remember James back in chapter number 12 was killed, killed with a sword. I wonder why are they not pursuing that? This man must be stoned. This man must be killed with a sword. That's what our scriptures call for. They keep pursuing crucify, crucify. I'm going to offer this to you. Why are they doing that? Because they hate him so much. They want pain and shame. And there's something bigger, though. They don't ask for stoning and killed by sword. They keep pursuing crucifixion. On a human level, practical level, it was their hatred of this. But on the bigger level, why did that happen? Because that's what God wrote. God wrote that's the way that it would happen. Would you look quickly, verse number 29, just look for a moment. And when they had carried out Paul's preaching, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, I'm going to offer my opinion. I think right there, I think we're not getting the word for word everything in Paul's sermon. Because if so, y'all would be like, dude, you got to start preaching shorter because, I mean, this guy. I believe in verse number 29, he spells that out. 
And when they had carried out, when they, the people in Israel, the Romans, led by the Jews, and they keep pursuing this, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. Obviously, at that point, he's dead, and they laid him in a tomb. Here's the other time, if we really had time. So just in your mind, would you do something in your mind? What was written in the Old Testament? Just in your mind. What was written in the Old Testament that they end up carrying out that they don't even know that they're doing? Do you remember any of the things? There's quite a few of them. There's dozens. There's what? Isaiah 53 has a lot. Psalm 22 has quite a few. There's Zechariah has some. I heard one of them mentioned right there. Can I give you just a, a, a brief list? Think about verse 20. And I believe Paul would have gone through this with his audience. Look at verse 29. When they had carried out all that was written of him... He was betrayed. They did not say, hey, private investigator, here's what we need you to do. See that guy? Follow him. Find out where he's at. Tell us where he stays at night, and eventually we're going to go out there and get him in the middle of the night. No. He is betrayed. He's betrayed by a familiar friend. The familiar friend, his name's Judas, was paid how much? 30 pieces of silver. If you want to make sure this is not the Christ... Then go either one more piece of silver or one less. Or give him four or five pieces of gold. Why are you doing 30 pieces of silver? And we know that Judas goes and casts the 30 pieces of silver in the temple. And they gather it up and they can't put it back in the treasury because it's blood money. What do they do with those 30 pieces of silver? They buy something. They buy a field which is called the potter's field. Don't do that because that's what the Bible says is going to happen. And yet they're doing all these things. He's silent. But you could say, yeah, well, Jesus did that. They should have done this. Hey, guys, fellas, whoa, whoa, I know you want to spit on him after what he said. And I know you want to punch him in the face. But don't. Because they could use that out of the scriptures and make it look like it's not. But they spit on him. And they beat him. And they allow the Romans to beat him. Why did they stand by? Because they had their people there at the cross when they saw the Roman soldiers taking his garments and dividing them out. And, oh, we got this one. We better gamble. We're not going to divide that. We're not going to tear that. We're going to gamble, and we're going to see which one of us gets that one. Why didn't they jump in and say, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. We'll actually pay you a lot of money for those. Just stop dividing and gambling. They may use that later. They don't. They allow it. Pierced his hands. Why did you choose that? Pierced his feet. We know his side ends up getting pierced. If they could do it over, imagine they would go back and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are these two fellows? Well, it's a couple of thieves, a couple of criminals. They're dying today too. No, we need him to die alone. We need him to die alone. Can you maybe put him on the outside? Why are you putting him in the middle? Just like they're, they're doing literally everything down by the book as it was written that they would. He thirsts. What's in that sponge? Sour wine, vinegar. Don't do that. Hey, what's this guy doing? Oh, he's breaking bones. Got to make sure they die so they won't keep pushing up and surviving longer. Break his legs, break his legs. Go to that one in the middle. Oh, he's already dead. We're not going to break. No, break them anyway because his followers are going to say one after another right down the line. When they had fulfilled all that was written, they would carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Can I quickly hit one thing? I want you to get 
what I'm about to say, and then we'll take a note. We're moving to the next thought. Do you know some Christians, actual born-again people, don't read the Bible? Maybe somebody here this morning. Don't read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. And do you know that some Christians can go a long, long time, and they don't listen to the Bible taught and preached? Listen to the Bible taught and preached. But you've got to hear what I'm about to say. Reading the Bible and hearing the Bible taught and preached by itself does not assure that you're going to understand it. Did they read the Bible? Every Saturday. They didn't have copies like you. They had a copy at the synagogue. They read it every week. Did they hear it taught? Yes, every week. There's exposition from the text, just like here. So what happened? Why did they miss it? Again, on the spiritual level, the big sovereign level, God kept them blind because he had to make sure that his son, which he sent for the very purpose of dying, he had to make sure that it happened. But on a practical level, help me out, watch this, something very important. Why did they read the Bible, hear it taught, and yet they missed it? They were totally blind. I want to propose to you, they saw things in the scriptures, but they didn't believe in them. They didn't bring them into the conversation, into their theology, because they didn't like it. We don't like that. We like the parts about our servant that's our, 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 our servant from God who's going to do these great things and he's going to conquer our oppressors. This whole dying servant of God, we don't, we don't believe that. They kept rejecting it. And so I'm going to offer you to write something down. I, listen, if you're an unsaved person this morning, I invite you to do this right here. If you're a Christian, this week, get your Bible out. But before you just launch into reading, like maybe some of you have been doing, do these two things. I'm going to invite you to do these two things. Number one, pray to the Holy Spirit before you read the Bible, before you come to church. This is what I do in my office. Over and over, I pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, would you have the Holy Spirit show me what this means? And then here's the second thing. Determine that you will accept whatever the Bible teaches, even if you don't like it. Would you write that down? I, I dare you to, to employ those two things this week. How do we end up on wrong conclusions? Pause. The Holy Spirit's the one who wrote the Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit in you to teach you the Bible. Holy Spirit, would you turn the light on? Father, would you have the Holy Spirit illuminate the truth of this passage? And then make up your mind going in. I am going to accept and believe whatever it teaches, even if I don't like what it says. Because I'm afraid sometimes Christians can come to the Scriptures with some preconceived notions, and we just pass right over any text that may go against our preconceived notion. I don't like that. I don't think that says that, so I'll just keep on moving on. And we just start reading our Bible without praying first. Don't do that. As you're writing, I ask you this. How, honestly, how can racism remain in a Christian who reads the Bible? How is that possible? How is our racism not just melted as we say, Holy Spirit, would you show me? How can you read the book of Ephesians and hold on to racism? How can we hold on to pride? How can we keep bringing our own common American ideas toward money? This is our money. It's my money. But we're reading the Bible. Jeff, I'm not one of those Christians. Don't read the Bible or listen to it, preach and talk. I read the Bible. Okay, great. Do you pray? And when you read, how can we still have a mindset toward money that's like everybody else? How, can, how come Christians have a mindset toward politics that lines up exactly how the networks want you to believe? We've got to approach the Word of God. Lord, I'm just going to read your Word. And then as it starts affecting what I should think about politics and economics and all those. We just use these buzzwords because our favorite channel, 
trains us that way. They have more sway over what we believe and do than the Word of God does because we don't approach it with the, with the right perspective. Theology. We can get some wacko things and beliefs about God, and we'll hold on to them because, well, I can't imagine a God that, well, listen, there's your problem. You like to imagine God. What if you start going with what it says about himself and let him? We'll do that next time we come into to this text. It's coming. What is this gospel message? Quickly, number two. You know where I'm going. Not only was Jesus, not only did he die according to the scripture, but Jesus was raised according to the scripture. He was raised. I mentioned earlier, he gets to verse number 30, but God raised him from the dead. And it would have been very easy if Paul just literally, if you were to read this over and over, you could say, wow, he could have stopped at verse 30, just jumped right down to verse number 38, and it kind of would have flowed. Why does he pause? I want you to write a few things. Look at verse 31. Here we go. But God raised him from the dead. And by the way, I'm going to be sort of brief here because in just a few weeks we'll be revisiting. And I don't yet know what I'm going to be preaching on, but we're going to be revisiting the whole idea of the resurrection. So let's use this as laying some groundwork. Verse 31. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Help me out. Don't say it. Think it. How many days? Paul just says, hey, he was raised. And for many days... He kept appearing to his followers that came from Galilee down to Jerusalem. For many days he did this. Do you remember? Forty. We know how long. Keep reading. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And now we know more information. If we were to go and look at the rest of the Bible, we not only know that it was for 40 days that Jesus appeared, and he appeared to people. Paul, this struck me, Paul does not say, and I saw him on the road to Damascus. I saw this bright light. He doesn't do that. He says he appeared, and that would have been true, but he says he appeared to witnesses, people that knew him intimately. They came from here and down here. How many do we know, at least how many people, at least, big round number, at least this many people saw at least 500? Because we know over 500 saw him at the same time, like two and a half times of the people that are in here. More than two and a half times, about three times people that are in here. That's how many people saw him at one time. And so they're not fooled. And we know these witnesses, are they out just sharing a story? Hey, trying to get popular? No, we know they sealed their testimonies as martyrs. Would you write this thought? Jesus' resurrection is featured in all of the apostle sermons in the book of Acts. And we know certain things. He, he appeared to his followers for 40 days. 500 plus people saw him at one time. And these people, Paul is saying right now, by the way, in the mid-40s A.D., these people are still alive and they're going around. But now on this side of history, we know that these people will end up sealing their testimony by dying. And you don't die for what you're not convinced of. As you're writing that, I'm going to touch on verse 32. So Paul comes back to he and Barnabas. He says, and we bring, you, we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he also, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. It's as though Paul says, hey, by the way, I want you to understand this. We're not here on secular business. We're not here starting a new company. Hey, what brings you two guys? Good to have you this morning. Have a word? Yep. 
Hey, by the way, me and that older gentleman over there with the silver hair, his name's Barnabas, we're not here trying to scout a new business. We're not on vacation. Looks like a great place. Got a great little town here. We're not here on vacation. And we're not going from here to here, and you just happen to be in the middle, and hey, it's Sabbath, well, let's spend the night, and we'll go to the synagogue tomorrow, and then we'll finish our job. We're not here. Listen, here's what he's saying. Verse number 32, we've interrupted our lives because this person we're telling you about, and what he's done is so important, and it's so crucial, you have to hear it. We came here to tell you this, and we're going to move on and tell other people this. So let's follow Paul's thinking for a moment. Would you look at verse 33, down to 30? Let's try verse 37, just get some overlay. You ready? You ready to tackle it again? Here we go again. Verse 33. And this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. What does the second psalm say? The second psalm, verse 7 says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have fathered you. Isn't that confusing? Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? Today I have fathered you. You're my son. Today I have fathered you. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. God saying to this descendant of David, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. I'm going to give them to you. You're the one that really these writings we're talking about. Verse 35, therefore, he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, David himself writes this, you will not let your holy one. Here's what David writes. We looked at this back in chapter 2. David says, God, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, and you will not let your holy one see corruption. And now here comes Paul, and he says, God was saying Psalm 16, verse number 10. He's talking to David's descendant. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. What does that even mean? For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But when God raised, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so Paul has taken three texts. Psalm 2 verse 7, Isaiah 55, I think verse 3, and then Psalm 16 verse number 10. And he's using these to defend this idea of who's being, uh, who's being crucified and resurrected. And it is according to the scriptures. Would you write this down? What does that mean? Verse 33. To, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I want to propose, if you want to write it down, the word today, today does not refer to any moment of time when God's Son began to exist. This does not mean, you can't read Psalm, uh, Psalm 2-7 and say, wow, God calls this person his son, and he says, today I have begotten you. Today I fathered you. So apparently he didn't exist, and he existed all of a sudden. No, the Son of God did not start to exist here. What this is saying is, a little little confusing, what it means is, today refers to the moment of time when the eternal Son of God became a human being at Christmas. And hopefully you understand what I mean when I put the word at Christmas. I don't literally mean at Christmas. I'm talking about what we celebrate at Christmas because the real miracle happened nine months before that. So what is this today? It's not when God's son began to exist because God's son's eternal. What it's saying is when God's son became a human being, today I have fathered you. So God's point in Psalm 2 and Paul's point in using Psalm 2 is this person I'm telling you that rose again is not just any old person. It's not just David's son. It's God's son in every way that is meant. 
the exact same nature of God, that's who this person that God raised from the dead. Verse 34. This is another one. Boy, I'm telling you, if we had time, and this was a discussion-based message, I would interact with you more. Do y'all see what's verse 34, what's a distinction there? As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Do y'all see how verse 34 separates Jesus? Have you ever thought about how many people in the Bible have been resurrected? Have you ever thought about that? How many people in the Bible are resurrected? Well, what prophet in the Old Testament God used to resurrect a widow's son? Who was that? Elijah? And remember, everything that Elijah did, what? Elisha does two of, in essence. God used Elijah to raise someone from the dead, a little boy, and then Elisha raises two. So there's three people in the Bible. Then you get to the New Testament. Jesus also raises a widow's son from the dead, and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So now we're up to five. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. We're up to six. Peter, back in chapter number nine of Acts, raises a woman named Tabitha from the dead. So we're up to number seven. And then as we get later on, at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul's going to raise a young man who's going to fall through. You think I preached long. Paul preached till midnight, and a young man fell three floors out of a window, and he died. And Paul was used to raise him from the dead. So eight people in addition. Jesus makes nine people. But how is Jesus different than all the rest of them? They all died again. They all died again. Verse number 34. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Lazarus, bless his heart, wore his grave clothes out of the grave. Jesus left his. Won't be needing them. He left with his glory, clothed in righteousness. Just before I touch on 35, 36, 37, which I think at this point is kind of obvious. Can I throw out what I believe verse 34 ultimately the bottom of it is talking about? I know you're writing, but could I offer this to you? Because it's a complicated text. Uh, it's not super clear. If you go over to read Isaiah, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is preaching this. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit to record it in the Bible for us. So we're drawing doctrine from this. Here's what I'm going to offer to you. You see that? Paul's defending the resurrection of Jesus from Psalm 2 and in Isaiah 55 and then ultimately Psalm 16 is a big one that he lays hold of. I believe the Psalm 55, I believe this is what it's ultimately saying. Hey, Israel, David wrote some things that are very confusing when you read them. It's because these were the holy and sure mercies of God that were going to happen to his greater descendant, coupled with Psalm 16, put it all together, and David wasn't really writing about himself, and they only make sense if you apply them to this man that we're talking about. And when you do that, they make perfect sense. The holy and sure mercies of God, some of the things David wrote, you're like, oh, yes, that's David. And other times, David had to be writing this and like, I don't even know what this means. But I'm supposed to write. You're like, what's, what's, like, what's an example? Hold your spot here. You're not going to see it on the screen. Hold your spot. I mentioned Psalm 22, right? Put a spot there. Go to Psalm 22. Hurry, 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 hurry. I got to hurry. You need to hurry. Let's go. Psalm 22. Look at verse 1. Psalm 22. This is by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? When did God ever forsake David? Verse number 6. 
David's writing, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I mean, you feel the, the hatred? Oh, oh, verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue he, him, for he delights in him. Do y'all remember literally the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders were at Jesus' cross? He said he could save others. Let's see if he can save himself. He calls out for God. He must think God can save him. Let God. They end up saying exactly what David wrote. No, it's not people didn't do this with David. Look down at verse number 14. David writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, sorry, man. I've read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. When were David's bones? David's right. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs, Gentiles, dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. David, when were your? Never were his hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothes, they cast lots. This never happened to David. What Paul is saying, hey, go back to Acts. Acts 13. What Paul is saying, if you'll understand what God was actually doing, is giving us these veiled hints of what was going to happen. And there's only, there's only 300 of them in the Old Testament. There's only 300 of these. So you see verse 35. I, I, I'm just throwing this out and I'm going to the last point. I hope that if, if I encounter a Jew... And I'm trying to talk to them about the Lord. I hope I remember to do, apparently Psalm 16 is such a key passage that Peter used it when talking to the Jews. And Paul used it when talking to the Jews. This whole thing. So apparently, I, would, I hope I remember. Hey, can I just like, Psalm 16, after we've done Psalm 22. How do you explain this about David? I'd love to hear their answer. Isaiah 53 was mentioned earlier. How do you explain all that? Man, it sure seems to fit what... The Jewish leaders did. But how do you explain Psalms 16, verse number 10, where David says, you will not, God, you're not going to abandon my soul to Hades, where he went to, one part of Hades would be the flames, and the other part of Hades would be Abraham's bosom, paradise. But you're not going to leave me over there. Well, you could say, yeah, that's talking about David. But what about this part where he says, you will not suffer your Holy One to be corrupted. David's not calling himself the Holy One. He's talking about someone in the future. I would like to ask a Jewish person, how do you explain that? Because Paul and Peter believe the only explanation that matches is he's talking about David's greater son, his great descendant, the Savior, who was actually the Son of God. It's that important. He was resurrected. David's body's at that point. Now it's 3,000 years. David's body's been decaying for 3,000 years. Jesus' body didn't decay because he was raised to life before the fourth day when corruption sets in, a.k.a. Lazarus started stinking on the fourth day. And then lastly, verse 38 41, Paul's conclusion, invitation, and warning. Paul's conclusion, his invitation, and his warning. And I admit, this, as I said earlier, this is a lot bigger text than we would normally do. But if you'll give just a few minutes, I don't think we'll have that long here, but I do want to hit it. Look at verse 38. Here's Paul's conclusion. Let it be known to you, therefore. Here, picture you're in, this, you're in the synagogue, you're a Jew. You've never heard this before. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him 
everyone, not just Jews, everyone who believes is freed. Free from what? From everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. So Paul's going to say, I'm offering you today, based on what we just said, God has sent a Savior. He's a descendant of David. He was killed according to the Scriptures, but God raised him again. He appeared to people. They're going to give their life to seal their testimony. And his resurrection and death both match all the Scriptures and make perfect sense of it all. And here's the reason it all happened. God is offering you today forgiveness of your sins if you'll believe. But notice, here's what you cannot do to have forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is not possible through the law of Moses. Follow me. If you'll think for a moment, the law of Moses, think of three things. They had a civil law. Some of you are doing this in your private reading right now, right? You're, you're in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. You're, do, you're reading through the Bible. And you know that, that civil law. When you march, this, this tribe is in the front. This tribe's in the back. And these people will carry the, the utensils and the parts of the tabernacle. And when you camp, you'll do it. So they have civil law. And then they have ceremonial law. These are the offerings and the sacrifices. So there's the ceremonial law. And then there's the moral law. The list, don't do this, do this. Moral law. Why can the law of Moses not save? Because Paul says you can't be saved. You can't have forgiveness of sins by the law of Moses. But you can get it by believing in this person that I've been preaching to you about who died and was risen again according to the Scriptures. You can't get it this way, but you can get it that way. Why does he say this? Write it down. Number one, why does the law of Moses not save us? Number one, because no one's ever actually kept the moral law of Moses. No one other than Jesus. No one. You do remember the Ten Commandments. Do you understand? No one in this room can say for their whole life they have loved God more than everything else. You love other things more than God, and our lives prove it so often. We've broken the first commandment. Who in here could honestly say, I have never taken the Lord's name in vain? Who can say, I've never dishonored my father and my mother? Who could say, I've never stolen anything? Who could say, I've never lied? No one in here can say you've never lied. No one in here can say you've never coveted. Why can't we be saved by the law of Moses? Because no one's ever actually kept it. Number two, write this down. The law was not actually given to us to save us. It was given to us to expose our sinfulness. I thought of it this way. I got this podium here we've had. I actually like this podium. It's good. I like this. It's not too big. What if you came in tomorrow morning like, hey, I need to run back by. I forgot I need to see Renee about something. And you look in here and I am pushing this thing and I'm pulling it. You're like, what is he? Was he working out? Oh no, I'm using the podium as a vacuum. You're like, that's the dumbest thing ever. That is not a vacuum. I would never use this podium to try to vacuum the floor. And yet some people try to use the law of God, the law of Moses as a way to go to heaven. It's not designed for that. You cannot be saved by the law of Moses. And then number three, what about that ceremonial law? Do you really, really Really? You sin. Hey, I sin. Go kill that animal so I can go to heaven. Did you really think the blood of an animal is going to wash your sins? It doesn't. You can't be saved by the law of Moses. So we have this word, freed. I proclaim to you forgiveness of sins through this man. And by him... Everyone who believes is freed. I know some of you are writing, but would you pause just for a moment? Do you see the word freed in your Bible? Does it have a little number beside it? Would you follow that number? And what word do you find? 
I hear it? Justified. By him, this Jesus, Paul's telling his audience, everyone who, everyone, Jew or Gentile, who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is justified. From what? Freed. From what? Everything. Now, this is good news. Listen to me, Grace View. We are freed from everything. We're justified from everything, which you could never have by the law of Moses. But through Christ, we're justified. Y'all do remember what justified means? Justified means we're God who makes the rules, who is the judge, declares, declares that person is righteous. He did this with me in 1979, June 1979. He declared me righteous. What'd you do? Well, I did a bunch of sins before that. And I was in sin then, and I've committed sin since. What would you do in 1979? I believed in Jesus, and my faith was counted as righteousness. And God says, I declare you righteous. I was justified. I didn't do anything. Jesus did everything. We're freed. Freed. This is your last note, but don't check out because we still have this warning. Okay? Because I know it's your last note. Last note. <laughs> Don't do that. Hang with me just for a second. Keep your Bible open. Wearsby writes, God not only forgives our sins, but he also gives us the very righteousness of Christ and puts it to our account. Two things. I'm going to forgive all your sins. Like, what sins? You're freed from the penalty of everything. Every sin you've ever committed. You remember when you said that and you shouldn't have and you thought that and you looked at that and you wore that? And you did that to yourself, and you did that to someone else. And remember when you went over there? Faith in Jesus frees you and justifies you. God forgives you of all of that. But you remember justification? We've talked about the scale. The scale, please put this in your mind. The scale is this. It's as though there's this scale, and the law of God, the law of Moses comes on that side, and the scale goes down. But don't worry. Over here is you. You get you and all your righteous things, and if you can just balance out the scale, match what that says with your righteousness, then you get to go to heaven. The problem is the Word of God, the law of God goes down. You jump on the scale. It literally doesn't move. But justification, being freed, is when you invite Christ saying, I believe what you did on the cross. If you'll bring your righteousness on the scale, then it will perfectly just come and wrap me and envelop me with your righteousness. That's what Paul is saying is available. Never by the law, always by faith in Christ. He gives you his righteousness, and he forgives you of your sins. All of it, past, present. Don't hear this and say, whoo, I'm going to go out and sin. No. Sin you've never even committed, any sin you ever will commit, it's already free. You're free. So the last thing is verse 40 and 41. There's a warning. Paul gives it his audience. I dare say he explained it a little further, but look at verse 40. Beware. Beware lest what is said in the prophets come about. What Paul is telling his audience, hey, Jews and you in the back, when the prophets say something's going to happen, it is going to happen. But if it's something negative that's going to happen, don't let it happen to you because you didn't respond to the Word of God properly. You say, what was this? I can't go into it all. You ought to go home and look it up. Just read the first chapter of Habakkuk. Look at verse 41. You'll have Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look at it. Look at it. Hey, don't let happen what the prophet said. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. 
For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells it to you. What Paul is saying is, back in, follow me, let's go back here quickly. In Habakkuk's day, God did something that the Jews refused to believe. No, he wouldn't. Habakkuk comes on the scene and says, Judah, God is raising up the Chaldeans and he's going to use them to judge you. No, he will not. You have great wickedness. And the Jews had great wickedness. But here's their thinking. The Chaldeans are more wicked than we are. They're like the most wicked, most cruel people in the world. God will not do that. Well, he did. Would God use a more wicked nation to punish his wicked people? He did. But they were astounded by it, and they perished. What Paul is saying, so what does that have to do with A.D. 45, 46? What Paul is saying is, God has done something astounding, but don't let that in your mind have you not believe it. You say, what's the astounding thing in, in, in Paul's day? God sent a man to pay for sins and, and allowed him to die on a cross. But he didn't send just anyone. He sent his own son. That was the message. Paul said, if you sat there and think, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't send his own son. You will be astounded and you will perish. Don't sit there and think he won't. He did it. He has done it. I'm declaring to you, good news. Don't keep looking for the Messiah. Receive what he's done. Could I go further? What astounding work. It's as though Paul could say, I'm adding now, I'm adding. It's as though Paul could tell his Jewish audience, God is going to destroy the Jewish temple. You know what they would say? He would never. Well, he would, and he did. And we could go further. Jewish audience, God is going to take this thing called Christianity and it is going to become a worldwide church, and Judaism is going to be insufficient. God would never. He will, and he did. And his last thing is, if you hear this message, Antioch, Graceview, if you hear this message and you think, I don't need saving, I'm a Jew, or I don't need saving, I'm not that bad, I'm better than them and them, and I do this, and I do these good things, and you've never had a moment in your life where you put your faith in Christ, like a moment of time, then you just keep going through life that way, and you will be astounded, and you will perish in hell. If you think, I know I need to get saved, but I don't think Jesus, what he did there is enough, I need to help him out. You will be astounded and you will perish for eternity in hell. Don't let it happen. It's going to happen to a lot of people. They heard it. They read it. Week after week after week, year after year. Do you know how many people are in hell right now who just like some people here this morning? They heard the gospel. They heard the message and the word of God over and over and over, but they just rejected it. They never let it apply to them personally. What Paul is saying is, you keep going through life. If you think, I've got another way I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to do this. You will be astounded. You'll be shocked, and you will perish. Don't, it's going to happen. It's going to happen to a lot of people. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart. I never knew you. Jesus said that is going to happen. That is going to happen. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. You say, how can I, not, how can I make sure it's not me? 
when you hear what we've looked at this morning, you've heard actually a simplified version of the gospel, and here it is. You've sinned, but God loved you so much. He sent his son as a Jew and his own people in fulfillment of the scriptures, crucified and beat him and spat upon him, hated him, and then they buried him. But God raised him from the dead, and it matches all the scriptures. And because of that, the message of the Bible is that through that, if you will believe what Jesus did, will count for you. And if you'll receive, if you will, in essence, see God saying, I'm offering you what Jesus did, just take it. And that's the message of the Bible. In 1979, I ask you to save me, Lord. Thank you. Have you ever done that? Heads bowed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Well, someone's told it to you today. I'm just wondering, and I'm going to ask you to do it privately. If you've never had a moment of time, John the Baptist called for a moment when a person confessed their sins. Going in the Jordan River didn't save them. But John called for a moment when a decision was made. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, I ask you simply this question. Do you think God loves you? And do you, in your heart, do you really believe God will save you if you ask him? Somebody in the room this morning has never been saved. You've never had a moment of salvation. I invite you. Do you believe God would save you if you ask him? If so, to the best of your ability, I invite you right now. Don't just hear it and scoff. Hear it and believe. I invite you right now, just right now, bring God into your sphere of awareness. The best you can, talk to God. Talk to him right now and confess your sins. John called for people to repent. Change your mind. Tell him. Tell him right now, God, I've got to be saved. God, I've never been saved. God, I'm a sinner. Tell him. Confess to him. God, I am a sinner. You're right. I'm a sinner. I'm in danger of hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to have a relationship with you. Confess your sins to the Lord. And while you have God in your thoughts and in your consciousness, don't stop there because that's not the finish line. Hear this verse. Let me read one more, two more verses. Hear it and then keep God in your conscious awareness and hear these verses as from God speaking them to you. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And by him, everyone who believes is free. So I'm going to invite you right now, between you and God, say, God, I ask you to save me. Will you save me from my sins? I'm asking, in your mind, however you do it, ask the Lord, Lord, would you let what Jesus did on the cross Get on the scale with me. I need his righteousness. I don't have any. And then believe that he, do, he will do it. Believe him. 
ask him, God, I know you're going to do it right now. God, I know you're going to do this. You can't lie. I receive your salvation. I receive it at this moment. Receive it. Take it. Believe it. Believe him. Believe Christ. Lord, I ask you to give faith and enlightenment. Lord, I pray. I pray that this morning you have overcome our familiarity with this text and let us hear it fresh. And I pray that we'll respond accordingly. And may believers give thanks for what you've done and how you've expressed your love. And Lord, I'll go ahead and ask you, if if you just saved someone, if someone just received salvation, I pray that they would make it known. Maybe even before they leave, they would just tell someone, hey, I got saved today. I trusted Christ. Lord, would you let them do that? Let them not be a secret Christian. Let them be one who professes Christ as Savior and Lord. We ask in his name. Amen. Have a great week.